All right. If you want to make your way back toward your seat, and as you do that, if, if you have a Bible and you want to get it open to Romans chapter 11, we're going to be in the, the last four verses of Romans 11, starting in 33 and then working our way to 36, which is where the chapter ends. And uh, as, you, as you get situated, picture a penny. You might have one uh, with you in your pocket. But don't pull it out, because if you pull it out, you'll be cheating. So here's, here's a penny. We all know what pennies look like, right? Yeah? Who's on the front of a penny? Abraham Lincoln, that's right. First and second service were really unconfident in that. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's on the front of a penny. What's on the back? A building with some columns. Uh... It, it was the Lincoln Memorial, but as of 2010, it is this Lincoln uh, Shield of the Union, the Union Shield that's on the back. Do you know which way Lincoln is looking? Like when you're holding a penny and you're looking at it, which way is he looking? Well, there are two options. We've called both of them out. He's looking to the right, and just to his left, you know what it says? It's, it says Liberty. We know what pennies look like, right? Yeah, we know exactly what pennies look like. The reality is that we're so familiar with pennies and what's on them and what they look like that we don't actually really look at them anymore. We kind of notice them or you're walking along and you see one and really all you need to see is the rough shape and the color and you know that it's a penny. We don't pick pennies up and study them anymore. Maybe... You've got young children and you're teaching them money and that's the extent of looking at a penny. But we're so familiar with it, we don't need to look at it much anymore. We cast quick glances at it. We see, yep, that's a penny. And then we move on. For the most part, if you're a church person, someone who's been coming to church over a number of years, you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, we can cast quick kind of penny glances at the gospel, if you will. Yep, looks and sounds like the same thing. I know that. I don't need to study it very much, so let's just kind of move along. It's the gospel. I get it. Romans has forced us to do the opposite. Romans is thorough. It's slow. Paul is methodical and logical in the way that he works through the truths of the gospel, of God's justification of humanity through the sending of his son. It should force us to not just look, but to actually see. To not just glance at the gospel, but to really behold what's there. And if we do that, when we behold we should only have one response, and it's the response that Paul has in Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, and it's a response of worship. We want to run to, but what do I do? How do I live? What am I supposed, what's this supposed to be like? What is this supposed to do inside of me? What is my life supposed to look like? We want to race to those questions. And Paul is going to get there, but he stops first. After all the theological explanation of the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul stops, and the place where he stops is not in anything practical, and it's entirely in a place of worship. 
We can see all the doctrine and all the theology of Romans 1 through 11. And if we truly see it, rather than just look at it, it ought to create a life of worshiping before it creates a particular way of living. And so I'm going to show all of my cards right here at the very beginning. I'm offering zero application points today. If that's why you came, it's going to be a long 25 minutes. I'm offering no application points. Because Paul wants us to worship before he wants us to live a certain way. The gospel calls us into a posture before it calls us into a lifestyle. And that posture is one of worship. That's what we're going to see this morning. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for your son. God, for the reality that you sent your son out of heaven into the world He took flesh upon his deity and as 100% God and 100% man, he lived an entirely sinless life. And he went to the cross where all the sin of the world was heaped upon him despite committing none of it himself. And he hung and he died there. He was taken down off the cross and placed in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose triumphantly and he walked out. God, that message ought to strike us in total awe and just in total wonder every time we hear it. We shouldn't be able to hear or think about the message of the gospel and be cool and calculated and unaffected by it, but it should move us to worship every single time. And so God, I pray this morning that the truth of the gospel would just wash over us in this room, Lord, and that your spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts, God, that you would open our minds and our ears that we might see and understand and hear the truth of the gospel and that we might just be wonderstruck by it. God, would your spirit do that work in and among us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bishop Hanley Mool was uh, a pastor a couple of hundred years ago. He says the following. He says, be equally aware of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. Let me translate that. It is impossible completely impossible to worship a God that you do not truly know. We worship God who is knowable. He's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. We don't just cast thoughts up into the air about what we think kind of the God in the sky might maybe be like. And then whatever it is that we throw up there into the air, we then worship. No, he's revealed himself to us and we can know him truly. Our finite minds can't know him fully, and we'll talk about that more in a second, but we can know him truly. And it's impossible to worship a God that you don't know truly. But the flip side of that is also true. If you truly know God, it's impossible to not worship him. Just absolutely impossible that you could know the character of God, the love and the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God and also know his justness and his holiness and his righteousness and know the work of his son sent to the earth to die on the cross for the sake of humanity, it would be impossible to know that truly and not be moved to worship. It's simply not possible. Beware of an untheological devotion and an undevotional theology. Let me give you the broadest strokes 
of an outline for Romans. From Romans 1.1 to 11.32, Paul does a lot of theological explanation. He's talking about doctrine. This is who God is, who you are, what God has done for the sake of humanity. And then in verses 33 to 36 of chapter 11, Paul moves from theological to doxological. He moves from doctrinal to worshipful. And he spends four verses just kind of ascending to the heights of worship. And then in Romans 12.1, all the way to the end of chapter 16, he goes from worshipful to practical. From doctrinal to worshipful to practical. That's the way Romans moves. It's the exact same way that most of Paul's letters moves. Ephesians works the exact same way. Three chapters of theological, one statement about how God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power. To him be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. And then Romans or Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, in light of all of this, live this particular way doxological, or theological, doxological, practical. Our understanding of who God is fuels our worship. And then you could go one step beyond that to say that our worship of God fuels our living for God. That's what we'll see next week. It's impossible to worship a God you don't truly know, and it's impossible to know God truly and not worship Him. Romans 11, 33 to 36, I think has all of Romans 1, 1 to eleven thirty two in view, but it flows specifically out of the mystery of what Paul has been unfolding in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 6 says that the word of God has not failed, it has not fallen, that God has been consistent. He's been holy and faithful to his chosen people, Israel, and to all the nations of the earth in his work to secure our justification or our salvation. Romans 9 says that God is sovereign and he is choosing to work out salvation according to his name and according to his glory, displaying mercy upon whom he will have mercy and compassion upon whom he will have compassion. And then Romans 10 flows directly on the heels of that and says that humanity is absolutely responsible for both the receiving and the proclamation of that mercy. God is sovereign. Humanity is responsible, and it's a mystery. We can't totally wrap our minds all the way around. And then Romans chapter 11, Paul says, God will be faithful to Israel. It's going to happen in a time that's future, but he made covenant promises, and he will be faithful to those promises, and it will happen after the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in. And then this is what comes next. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All of the analysis and argumentation of Romans 1 to 11 and specifically of Romans 9, 10, and 11, gives way to this adoration from Paul. And he starts with, oh, the depth. If you've got a CSB or an NIV, yours says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. If you're holding an ESV or an NLT, yours says, oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. Both of those renderings are absolutely acceptable. Riches, wisdom, knowledge. That's what's going to set the course for this doxology that Paul offers. 
So we'll just work with all three of those words. Oh, the depth of the riches. Paul has spoken a lot of the riches of God throughout Romans. We can make a a theological truth that God's riches includes all of the material and immaterial universe and world that encompasses us. But I think, though that's true, specifically what Paul has in mind are the riches of God's grace and mercy and kindness shown to us in Jesus Christ. He's talked of that throughout the letter. Romans 2.4, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Romans 9.23, God tells us that our, yeah, we're told that God has mercy in order to display the riches of his grace to the world. In Romans 10.12, we're told that God richly blesses all those who call on him in faith. Salvation is a gift that flows from the riches of God. And those riches have no end. They are higher than the highest mountain peak you could climb up. They are deeper than the deepest ocean trench. They are more vast and broad than the full scope of the horizon where you to get as high as you possibly could and see as far as you possibly could. You could dive into the vault of God's riches and swim around in it for the entirety of your life like Scrooge McDuck in all of his money. That bank account cannot be overdraft. That checking account cannot write a check that would possibly bounce. The depth of the riches of the grace of God. Inexhaustible. Unsearchable. Unfathomable. But he goes on. Because just as deep as the riches of God's kindness... The riches of his grace and his mercy are the depths of God's wisdom and his knowledge. Two separate words there that are similar but convey two different ideas. Knowledge is the knowing of all things. Where it stands, where everything is headed, where everything is going to end. Wisdom is the directing of those things to their best end. Not only does God know everything where everything stands, all the facts, all the figures, where everything is going, but he's also directing it. It's not just that he knows everything, it's that he's wise enough to move it to its best possible end point. Paul's declaration is that the depth of both of those, the wisdom and the knowledge of God are so unsearchable that we could never hope to understand them in full. And the irony is that he spent like 5,000 words trying to explain it already. In Romans 1 through 11, he's tried to lay out to the very best ability under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that human language can possibly give to the explanation of the depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. He's tried to lay it out, and then he says, but we can't possibly know it. Oh, the depth of it. It's beyond searching. We can't know the fullness of God's wisdom and the fullness of his knowledge. And Paul breaks out into worship both because of what we do know about God, but also because of the reality that it's impossible to know it all. And God's worthy of worship for both of those things. God's wisdom and knowledge have planned our salvation. His riches have provided it for us. By his wisdom and his knowledge, he planned out the means by which eternity passed humanity would be justified through the sacrifice of his son and by his riches he has provided that son to the cross on our behalf oh the depth of that paul says and the two exclamation points there in verse 33 give way to question marks in verses 34 and 35 
They're both quotations from the Old Testament. The first one comes from Isaiah chapter 40. That's verse 34. And then in verse 35, he quotes from Job chapter 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. We are not God's counselor. He is ours. God has known all things before a single thing was ever created. He is not learning or growing in his knowledge as history moves forward. You did not catch God off guard because you decided to have two pieces of bacon this morning rather than your standard English muffin. He knows everything. He did not watch you do that and think, I had no idea she liked bacon. Where did this come from? He knows all things. He knows everything about what's happening in your tenuous situation at work. He knows everything about what's happening in the difficult parenting struggle you're having. He knows everything about what's happening in your family life, in your relational life. He knows everything that's happening in your private life. He's not learning of these as history races forward. He knows it all. All of the knowledge, all of the wisdom are his. The depth of it is unsearchable, we're told. And yet, sometimes we act as though we are going to be God's informant about what's happening. That something's going on in life and we say, hey, let me tell you what's happening down here. As if God is up in heaven saying, gosh, thank you very much. I needed someone to inform me about that thing. And the issue is not that God doesn't want to know about what's going on in your life. The issue is the posture that we come at it from. We come as God's counselor when we ought to come as his supplicant, completely dependent upon him for everything that flows from his hand. Instead, we oftentimes come as though we're the one that's going to somehow instruct God on the best way to handle the thing that's going on in our life. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? The answer is no one. The depth of his wisdom and knowledge is unsearchable and untraceable. To suggest that we could ever be in a position of instructing the Lord is such unthinkable pride. It's absolutely impossible. And then Paul goes on, who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? In the same way that we're not God's counselor, we are not God's creditor. He is ours. His kindness and mercy and love and grace are of a depth that cannot be measured. There is more love in Christ than there is sin in you. And you know exactly how much sin there is in you. I know exactly how much sin there is in me. And yet the depth of the riches of God's love is deeper than the stain of sin that runs through me. It is unfathomable. And while I think here, like I said earlier in Romans eleven thirty three to 36, Paul specifically has in mind the depth of the riches of God's grace and his kindness and his love. It's also absolutely true that God's riches extend far beyond that like I mentioned earlier, that everything material is His. We would all intellectually and from our hearts assent to the fact that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? But He owns more than that. 
He owns the million little tiny bacteria on the back of a single flea that's buried in the hair of that one particular cow on that one particular hill. And he owns all the millions of bacteria on all the fleas, buried in all the hair, on all the cows, on a thousand hills, in a thousand different planets. He owns all the cows on every hill in all 195 countries on this planet. And he owns all eight planets in our solar system. And I say eight because they took Pluto away from us and I haven't recovered. (laughs) He owns all 100 billion solar systems that exist in our galaxy and all 200 billion galaxies that exist in our universe. All of them are his. What could you possibly give to him to complete what he has? Who's ever given to God that he should repay him? The answer is no one. God can fully finance every undertaking that he's ever going to do from eternity past all the way into eternity future, and he needs no gift from me in order to complete it. All of it's his. Oh, the depth of the riches. They're unthinkable. They're unsearchable. They're untraceable. We are not God's counselor. He is ours, and there is wisdom and knowledge beyond measure within him. We are not God's creditor. He is ours, and he has repaid all of our debt with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Some exclamation points and some question marks lead Paul to what is just the height of praise. It's in verse 36. It's like he can come up with no other words. And so this is what spills forth. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me give you the Greek for all. It means all. It's all from him. It's all through him. It's all to him. And all the glory is his forever. Paul rises up to the heights of that praise. All things are from God. God is creator. In the beginning, God, before anything else existed, he was there in eternity past. He will be there into eternity future. And everything that exists has flowed from him. R. Kent Hughes says it this way. There was a time where there was nothing but God. There was no sun, but he dwelt in ineffable light. There was no earth, but his throne stood fast and secure. There was no heaven, but his glory was unbounded. And then he spoke and everything leaped into existence. From him are all things. Everything material, everything immaterial are from him. Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Every good thing that exists in our lives is from him. Every bad thing, every hard thing, every challenging thing that exists in our lives is from him. Our salvation is from him. The prophets and their prophecies are from him. The son was sent from him. The atonement won at the cross is from him. The forgiveness bought by Jesus' blood is from him. All of it from him. God is creator, but he's not just creator. He's also sustainer. Through him are all things. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. 
were God to remove his sustaining hand from the world for even just a fraction of a second, everything would cease to exist. Were God to take his staying hand and just pull it back from creation, everything would perish. He is the sustainer of all things. Everything material and immaterial, not just from him, but sustained by him. Our salvation is sustained by him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, Creator, Sustainer. He sits at the right hand of the throne in heaven and pleads our innocence. His blood is the righteous covering through which we are going to be judged one day. He intercedes on your behalf, sustaining you in the presence of God for all of eternity. He is the sustainer. He is the creator. He's also the end point. Because it's not just from him and through him that all things are, but also to him. Like we saw last week, everything is racing toward one end point, one glorious eternal culmination at the foot of the throne where God will dwell with his people and where the sun will be the only light needed because he will shine so brightly and so radiantly that everything will dwell in his light. That's where all things are headed. To him are all things. A new heaven and a new earth with a new creation, with a new or a humanity that's clothed in these new glorified bodies that bear not even the faintest resemblance of sin or even the faintest memory of sin. That's where everything's headed. He is the end point. Our salvation is to him, a testament to his mercy, a trophy to his grace, a picture of the goodness of God that points to nothing inherent within us and everything that is good and holy and righteous and perfect within him. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the end point of all things. Everything comes from him, lives by him, and ends in him. He's the source of all things, the means of all things, the heir of all things, from him, to him, or from him, through him, to him. And then Paul lands in the last sentence of Romans 11. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, to him be some glory sometimes. It doesn't say, to him be the glory that you're willing to give when things go your way. It doesn't say, to him be the glory that you're willing to give when you feel like it. It doesn't say, to him, be the leftover glory after you've given the rest of it to somebody else. It doesn't say, to him, be some of the glory for the times when God does something miraculous and overcomes something big in your life. It says, to him, be the glory. Every last bit of it. Every drop, every breath, every moment, all the glory for all of time and all of your life, for all of eternity, his. To him be the glory for. Ever. He will have every last bit of it, whether you're willing to give it or he takes it for himself. He will have all of the glory forever. Amen. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay him? No one. Why? 
Because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our understanding of God fuels our worship of God. Paul's going to go on. He's going to pick up in Romans 12. What we have is Romans 12, 1 here. He's going to continue on with all the practical applications and implications that this gospel brings to bear on the life of an individual believer. He's going to spend Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 spelling all of those things out. And we're going to spend from next Sunday all the way through like the end of February working out those applications and those implications. But he stops before he gets there. Having seen the depths of God's grace and mercy and the justification of a sinful and a broken humanity, Paul stops and he rises to the height of worship. And that's what we're going to do as well. We are not going to just race forward into the practicals because that's where we want to get. We're going to stop and just fall on our faces in worship. How many pennies do you think you've seen in your life? A thousand? 5,000, 10,000, I don't know. We don't even keep track of pennies. At some point, we stopped really seeing them. We look at them. We notice them. We don't really actually even know what's on them. I proved that by just asking three questions. How many times have you seen the gospel? How many times have you heard it? thousand, a hundred, maybe this is your first time. The depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God, of his grace and his mercy and his kindness are so deep and so immeasurable that we should be just as dumbstruck by the gospel the 10,000th time we heard it as the very first time we heard it and understood. We should be as arrested by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us after a hundred thousand days of following Jesus. Like I didn't do any math. Someone's going to tell me that's impossible, that no one lives that long. Right. That's why I picked the number. We should be as arrested by the work of Jesus on that day as we were on the first day that we ever heard of it, that we would exclaim after having taken a long, slow, hard look at the gospel. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, how untraceable. I'm not his counselor. I'm not his creditor because from him and through him and to him are all things and he will get every last shred of glory from my life from now until the day I die and then on into eternity because all of it's his anyway. That's what the gospel ought to do to us. And when we race to the practical stuff, we leap right over that kind of worship. And if we don't ever land in a spot of worship, we'll never live lives that glorify the Lord. We won't live lives in response to the gospel until we have been struck down by the awe and power and depth of mercy of the gospel. John Stott says it this way. There should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate subject for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before him in adoration. We're going to spend the rest of our time in worship. And you might have walked in here this morning 
You might have walked in here the last hundred Sunday mornings thinking to yourself, I don't really like to sing. I don't really care. Awesome. <laughs> because if your primary response to worship in song or worship in life is, I don't really like to sing. I don't know that you've seen the gospel. You might be the very worst singer on the face of the planet. I don't know if that person's in here. Maybe you are. And it's Mark. And you <laughs> hear and see and truly understand the depth of the gospel and it should have one reaction inside of you. Oh, the depth. I would give it all. I will sing with my hideous singing voice every day for the rest of my life because of the greatness of the glory of God in sending his son on my behalf. And we gather together and we sing that inside here. And sometimes we have powerful moments of worship in here and we ought to leave here and that worship should just be bubbling out of us in all that we go and we do. That's what it is to be gospel-centered. That the cross just lingers there in front of us at all times and we take long looks at it, not passing glances. And it leads us to a place of worship. It leaves us in a place of worship. We're going to sing worthy of it all. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. For from you are all things and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Amen? Let's sing together.